Well, as I said, we're in a series that we've entitled uh, Living uh, in the Light. And uh, we've been in this series for the last uh, two months. So we're in uh, part eight in our series that uh, we have uh, been talking about this incredible letter uh, that was written to the church. Now, I want you to know that I've broken this uh, book up into five uh, components. And we're at the end of the first uh, division of this book uh, with our text this morning. Uh, over these last eight weeks, we have talked about not only living uh, in the light, but also about maintaining fellowship with our God. Uh, from first uh, the first verse of our uh, book uh, in this study, uh, we have seen how we are called to maintain fellowship with our God. And we're going to come to the final chapter of how we are to maintain fellowship today. It's the most subtle thing that can take us away uh, from our fellowship with God, and that is our involvement in the world. And so I want to look to our text this morning, and I know you've just sat down. I'm going to have you stand up for the reading of God's Word, and we're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. This is what the Word of our God says. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of the sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Father God, we once again come before you before your throne, where you are high and lifted up. And Father, uh, I pray that we would uh, be arrested uh, by the text this morning. Lord, that we would be reminded that we are to be in the world and yet not of the world. But Lord, that's, that's a hard thing for us as human beings to balance. And Lord, I'm so thankful for the theme of this morning's worship, the theme of your grace. Lord, we need that amazing grace. That grace alone is the only thing that can allow us to be victorious in this world of sin. So Lord, I pray that we would fill ourselves anew with the knowledge of Your grace. That we would live in light of that grace so that as we flood our thoughts and our minds and our hearts with You, that the things of this world as the praise song says, will grow strangely dim. Lord, that's our desire. We, we want to be salt and light in the world. We don't want to be just another inhabitant of this place that is passing away. So Lord, we need your grace. We need your wisdom. And for that, we open your word this morning to be taught. Change us. Transform us into your son's likeness. In Christ's name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Recently, I uh, was watching a television and a commercial came up for a uh, TV show that I had never uh, heard about before. And uh, it's not one that I would uh, care to watch, but I think it brings forth an important metaphor for our discussion today. The name of the show was called Cheaters. And it was about a show that would chronicle the lives of individuals who are uh, under suspicion of unfaithfulness in their marriage. 
through the use of uh, hidden cameras and private investigators, a worried spouse would uh, encounter or, or would come to this show and say, I want you to, to find out if, uh, if my spouse is being unfaithful. And so they would chronicle the life of that individual, again, through surveillance and all of that. And, and knowing what the end result is going to be from the 30 or 45 second blurb that was given, you could tell the individual that they uh, were showing that was going to be the subject of the show that week was guilty. Uh, they show him in, in uh, situations with this other individual, and uh, he's caught red-handed. And as a result, uh, he denies it when he's approached. And they don't show much of that, but he denies it, and it's there that they then show uh, a, pic- a picture of a television that is about to lay forth the story of his unfaithfulness. And he say, Tim, why, why a subject like that as an opening illustration? When I saw that, this message came to mind. This message, this text came to mind because we are called adulterers in the book of James. And I wonder if the Lord would have it in His will that last week He would have taken your life and through the use of private investigators, He doesn't need them, He knows all things, and through the use of recording devices... And without you knowing, he was to follow your steps this last week. What would people see? What would that recording look like? Would people see uh, the same person that they see on Sunday? Would they see someone who loves and adores living in the light of Jesus Christ? Might they see someone who finds themselves involved in uh, flirtatious uh, aspects of living uh, with all types of issues in life? Might they see you involved in a full-fledged affair? Maybe not just with an individual. That's one aspect of unfaithfulness to God. But in all kinds of sin. What John is going to tell us today is be careful. Be careful that uh, you maintain your fellowship with God. And one of the biggest deterrents to that maintaining of fellowship is your living in the world. This is an important lesson for us to understand amidst all the media, amidst all the pervasiveness of worldlyism and worldliness in our lives today. Now, I, I wish I could say that if you were to take that recording and to show it today, that you would see the same Tim that that preaches every Sunday. I would hope that there would be a lot of aspects of that. Uh, But sadly, I'm sure that the stain of worldliness even affects your preacher's life, your elders' lives. It affects the people that teach your Sunday school classes and lead your small groups. It's a stain that all of us carry. And John wants to deal with it. John wants us to maintain our fellowship with God, to live in the light. And he says to do so means we must have a proper understanding about the love of this world. As I said, James says that friendship with the world causes us to be adulterers. And yet we very rarely think about it in that way. We usually put up great fronts so no one will be able to see who we really are. 
Uh, for many years, this subject of worldliness has sparked many heated discussions within the church. Growing up, for me, worldliness was summed up in what uh, people at the church that I attended called the filthy five. Drinking, smoking, movies, playing cards, and of course, dancing. Sadly, the filthy five uh, do not uh, show us what the Bible says on the subject of worldliness. Worldliness. But there's no question, this uh, question of worldliness, it's pervasive in our world today. The tug of the world is growing more and more every day. Think about what you've been bombarded with in this last week. Attractive people telling you that you can't find happiness without a certain product in your life. Celebrities telling you that true joy is found in the lifestyles that they live. Advertisements contradict the command that Scripture says for us to be content in all things by telling us our houses must be bigger, our cars must be newer, our vacations more lavish and expensive, and that happiness is found when we find what we're looking for. This is what the world offers. Whether on TV or the radio or in print, we are bombarded with the idea of the message of the world that says, you look out for number one. Look out for yourself. Take care of yourself. Now in light of that worldly perspective, Christians have swung the pendulum when it comes to this epidemic. The first thing that Christians will do on one side of the extreme is to remove themselves from all aspects of worldliness to remove themselves from uh, anything that would remotely uh, get them close to any kind of contamination of sin. There was a man named Simon the Stylet who lived in the 4th century. He was a preacher. And this man was so concerned about not being contaminated with the world that for 30 years, 30 years, he lived on the top of a platform over 30 feet high so that he would stay unattached from the world around him. And from that platform each Sunday he would preach, articulating the dangers of the world and the need to remove themselves from it. We see it in the life of those that are Amish. And not to, uh, you know, uh, poke any kind of uh, derogatory comments towards those people, but it's a fact. They have removed themselves in many facets from the world around them, from the excesses of life. And we could go through all these other isolationist uh, groups of individuals that do that. And that's one way you can remove yourself from the issue of worldliness. But sadly, we're told to be in the world, not of the world. And so Scripture tells us we are to be aliens and strangers in this land. And that gives the idea that we are involved, we are engaged in a journey together in this thing called life, and that we can't be completely removed. And then there's, so there's the obvious ways of, of that uh, scene with those isolationists. But then there are other Christians who swing the pendulum the other way, and who live by the adage, when in Rome, live as the Romans do. And there are some of us today who don't think one thought about worldliness. You don't think about the messages and the direction that the world is sending you. 
And so you, in an oblivious state of mind, watch TV, consume the things of this world, pursue the same things that your unsaved neighbors and friends find themselves pursuing, and you do it and you think that you can balance that with your life of faith and living in the light. This is why Barna, the great church statistician, says that when looking at evangelicals and those that are unbelievers, that it's very difficult at times to see a difference. We spend our money the same way those who don't believe in Christ do. We watch the same things. We listen to the same things. We do many of the same activities. We have the same outlook on money and the same outlook on the selfish desires of our hearts just as those unsaved friends and loved ones that we have. This issue of worldliness can destroy the Christian. But we need to find a balance. We can't remove ourselves from it. That's not what God has called us to. Nor can we just live uh, and just do the things that they do because throughout the New Testament we are commanded to flee uh, the things of this world. And so we have to find a middle ground. And within this middle ground, there are many questions that worldliness and a Christian's response forces us to answer. Who am I going to be friends with? What TV shows and movies will I watch? What will I surf when I'm on the net? What will I listen to? Where will my kids attend school? What kind of clothes will I wear? What will be my hobbies? Where will I spend my money? And we could go on asking the questions of our response to worldliness, and they could go on forever and ever and ever. And it's going to be hard to address these things in this message, so I'm going to cite a book that I would invite all of you to read. Keith says he's going to buy some copies for us uh, to have uh, for you to pick up. It's the book called Worldliness, and it's a, it's a book that's been compiled by different authors, uh, but the editor is C.J. Mahania, a pastor uh, in the Sovereign Grace uh, Church movement. And it talks about resisting the seduction of a fallen world. And in this book, the chapters are God, My Heart and Media, God, My Heart and Music, God, My Heart and My Stuff, God, My Heart and My Clothes, and How I Am to Love the world. Not a very long book, but a book that I believe will change your outlook on how you, a believer, walks in this world. So John tells us we're not to love the world. And in our text today, we see a prohibition of the, not of just a list of activities, but more as a warning to be careful as believers to not fall to sin and to center our attention on Christ and his kingdom. That's how we do it. That's how we get away from this issue of worldliness. Now I want you to know God doesn't give us this text to say, Village Bible Church, I don't want you to have any fun. Village Bible Church, I don't want you to be able to have a good time. But he shares with us that when we pursue him and his righteousness and live within his parameters, it is there that we find the greatest joy and contentment and satisfaction. Now before I get to the text, I know this is a long uh, opening introduction. But before I get into the text, I want to make two things abundantly clear. Number one, worldliness is subtle. Write that somewhere in your outlines. Worldliness is subtle. It's like carbon monoxide. It's odorless. It's tasteless. You, you don't know if it's present in, in your life. 
And so what do you do? You get a carbon monoxide uh, alarm. Ours is down in the basement. It's plugged in at all times. And, and I've not, thankfully, ever heard that go off. But I'm glad it's there because something that I don't see and, and can't touch or, or, or smell, I need to be defended against. And so that alarm will tell me when uh, the levels of the carbon monoxide in my home are unhealthy. This text is a carbon monoxide alert for worldliness. Because it's subtle. We need the scriptures to say, beware, be careful. It's subtle. Understand that. It's not as, as clear uh, as many things in the Christian life. The second thing that we need to remember, and this is very important, is that worldliness is always far easier to see in the life of someone else than in your own life. Let me say that again. Worldliness is always easier for you to see in others' lives than in your own life. And this is where we have to be careful because as you preach a message on worldliness, many of your thoughts are, I hope the person sitting next to me with that fancy car is listening. I hope that person next to me who has that big house is listening to this message. I hope that young lady sitting next to me who thinks she can wear anything she wants to church is listening. Let me tell you something. Before you go there, deal with your skeletons in the closet. It's always easier for us to look at how someone else is failing before we look to the life that we have. And understand this, when you go to that level of judgment and you start pointing out the faults of other individuals, I just want you to know, you may have everything else working out great for you and you must be, may be the most holiest Christian around, but because you're living with that kind of attitude, you are worldly. You just broke it. You fell into it. And so look at your life. Use this message not to worry about anybody else but yourself. Worldliness is subtle and we all are prone. All of us, every one of us has a level of worldliness in our lives. This is a message that is applicable to man, woman, and child of all ages. So what do we do? Let's look at these points. This one's been up for a while, I think. The first one is, is that if we want to remain faithful... In a world full of sin and iniquity. And we must first have a proper love for this world. Let's get to our text. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. John gives ten words in verse 15. And in this verse we see verse a verse that we would love to rip out of the Scriptures. Do not love the world. What do you mean, John? This world is great. What do you mean, John? This world is a place of great joy and fulfillment. I can't think of a better place in this universe to live than on this planet Earth. This is a wonderful place to be a part of. Tim, have you ever been to the Grand Canyon? Beautiful. Have you ever gone and, and seen a wonderful a movie or play and, and, and all the different uh, senses that are brought into things? Have you been to Disney World, Tim? It's amazing. How can you say, John, and Tim, how can you preach that we're not to love this world? We want to take this and just rip it out of our Bibles. And yet, this is what John says. 
This world that is filled with great things, this world that brings forth much happiness in our lives, we learn that we, if we want to have a proper love, it involves having an attitude, having an attitude that we must possess. What is our attitude regards to this world? We're not to love it. It's important to take John's words and to see his use of contrast. Look uh, just a couple verses back in verse 10. Uh, let's go start with verse, uh, let's see here, 9 uh, of chapter 2. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there is nothing to make him uh, stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. The contrast in our relationship, as we learned a couple weeks ago, in our love with one another, is that if we, we have a choice, we can love our brother, that's choice number one. Choice number two is, we can hate him. There's no middle ground. And so what John is saying is, is if we don't love the world, then in essence what he is saying is we are to hate the world. Now that should throw all kinds of alarms off in our minds. Wait a minute, Tim. I've not heard this kind of teaching before. Hate the world? Now, what do you mean by that? Well, to understand it, we need to understand the word world. It's the word cosmos. This is one of John's most favorite words. It's used in the New Testament 185 times. 105 of those are used by John himself, the author of our uh, book that we're studying. And this word cosmos speaks of order. Early on, it would speak of God's ordered creation. The word cosmetics comes from this word. I think it's kind of a play on words that a woman puts on cosmetics to bring forth created order. I'll leave it at that. But this is the cosmos. Now, when we think about the world in this place that we are to not love, in fact, hate, we need to be careful that we don't take it too far and and use this word cosmos to mean a couple of different things. And so this attitude, write this down, this attitude that we must possess has to be focused in on the right things. I want you to write this down for a moment. Uh, Write down the word planet. Is John talking about the planet? Is John saying the world, the created structure of the world, the trees and the clouds and and the dirt and, and all the things that this world has, the animal life, are we to hate it? Are we to go to that Grand Canyon and say, I hate you, Grand Canyon. You're ugly, you're gross, you're all this. How dare you look as beautiful as you are? I despise you for being there. No. Genesis says that God created and he said it was good. In in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 6, he tells us that God gives us all things for our enjoyment. So John isn't talking about the planet. Notice the next thing. Is he talking about people? Is he talking about people? Are we to go and someone says, hey, Tim, good morning, and you look and say, don't you dare talk to me. I hate you. Is that what John is saying? We're to hate people? No. Because we see in John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world. He loved the world so much that he gave his only son. 
Who is the world that he's talking about? Did, did God send his son into the world to redeem creation? That's part of it, but that was in the pinnacle of, of his redemptive process. He loved the people of this world. Even the sinners. Jesus' ministry. Uh, the majority of his time was focused in when he wasn't debating the religious leaders of his day were dealing with the tax collectors and publicans and the sinners in his midst. Jesus showed us that we are not to hate the people of this world, but we are to love them and to minister to them just as Christ did. So what is it then? It's the programs of this world. Write that down. It isn't about the planet, nor is it about the people, but it's about the schemes of this world, the ways of this world that are anti-God. And it runs through a a program that is seen in the rise of three symptoms in this world. We see the rise of this program uh, that is empowered by the devil himself to spur on false religion, uh, to uh, not only bring false religion, but to create issues amongst us which then bring forth crime. And then, of course, all the godless living that we see in this world. All of that doesn't come from God, but it comes from the programs of this world in which Satan rules over. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2 tells us this. He is the prince of the kingdom of the power of the air. He is the spirit that is at work in those who are disobedient. How is he at work? Because he has the, those that are disobedient falling in line with his program. It is within this program, uh, the mindset of this program, that all selfishness, greed, and pride are found. It is this world that God's wrath is being revealed against it. This is the love that John tells us not to have. Now you think that it would be easy, and it's not. This verse here tells us do not love the world as if it's something, okay, that's easy to do. But I don't know about you, but I so many times fight the temptations of this world. You're going to Best Buy? You know how junky your stuff is when you walk into Best Buy? I went to the auto show a couple weeks ago. You know how junky your car is when you go into the auto show? It's easy for us to fall prey to this issue of worldliness because of the programs. Everything that we see in this world that is not of God has one level or another of worldliness involved in it. We've got to be careful. So we see an attitude that we must possess. Notice there's an affection that must be protected. He says we should not love the world or anything in it. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Understand this. There's a contrast that is being done. Don't love the world or anything in the world. And so if that is the attitude that we must have, knowing that the programs of this world are leading us away from God, then that which we should protect is the love of God that he says at the end of verse 15. We ought to be protecting our hearts. We ought to be protecting our eyes. We must be protecting our minds from the junk in this world that will lead us away from God. Why? Because we want to be filled with the love of God. We want to know the love of God. We want to be a part of it. And that's why we must focus our lives, not on the things of this world, but on the things of God. Seek first the kingdom of God. 
Boy, if we would just do that as believers, our lives would be different. It'd be amazing how content we would be. It'd be amazing how our time and our priorities would change. The implications of what John is telling us is that uh, what he heard from his Savior in Luke 16, 13, and then, of course, it's said also in 1 John 4, 19, that the implications of this verse, do not love the world or anything in it, and if you do, you will not have the love of the Father in it, is Jesus' command that we cannot serve two masters. And sadly, in this church today and in churches all across the United States and even in the world, we have believers, I myself, fall to serving two masters. I want to have both. I want the assurance of my salvation. I want that maintenance of fellowship when it comes to my walk with Jesus Christ. But boy... There's a lot of stuff in this world that looks really good right now. There's a lot of things that I would love to feast on because I see them with my eyes. I feel the tug of my heart. The senses of my being tell me everything about me says, go and be a part of it. It's a buffet. And a big bald guy won't ever turn away from a buffet. Look at all there is to offer. And you can have as much of it as you want. Take it in. Eat it in. And so I have this issue that wages war. Paul says this in Romans chapter 7. The things that I don't want to do, the buffet of this world, all that the world has to offer, the things I don't want to do, I find myself going to those things. And the things that God has called for me to have, the things that God wants me to be a part of, the obedience that He has called me to live out, I fail at doing. The Apostle Paul struggled with worldliness. So don't you think you probably fall to it as well? You say, well, Tim, you know, it's not as bad as you say. And really, you know, what's a little dabbling going to do? I give you case study number one. It's the only one I want to give you this morning. And it's a man by the name of Demas. Demas is spoken about three times, I believe, in the New Testament in the book of Philemon and the book of Colossians, chapter 4, verse 14. In both those passages of Scripture, Paul addresses Demas as a faithful co-worker in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's doing great things and he's be- being commended for his work in the gospel. But the last word that we hear about Demas, this guy that is a co-worker with Paul's on the ground level of doing great things for Jesus Christ, proclaiming and preaching... 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10 says that Demas has deserted me because he loved this present world. You think you can walk on both sides of the fence? Look to Demas. Demas gave up the faith. Demas abandoned his co-workers, Paul and Timothy and Titus and Barnabas and, and the like. He was a part of good, strong Christian fellowship. But he had probably dabbled little by little, always looking back like Lot's wife did to the world of Sodom around him. And finally something clicked and he said, you know what, why am I doing this ministry? Why am I serving this God? It seems, and I have to be honest with you, the thing that comes up to my mind is, boy, doesn't it look like those sinners are having a lot more fun than I am? They seem to be enjoying themselves. 
They're not carrying around all weak and sad the the baggage of a failing Christ. The conscience of the Holy Spirit living and active in your life telling you how rotten you are at times. I don't see that in the life of many of my neighbors. They're just enjoying life. They're enjoying it. They're eating and drinking and being merry. I wonder if Demas was thinking that. And it says what he did is he deserted the faith. Some of you are steps away from deserting the faith. I know because I've counseled some of you who have found yourselves in levels of sin. And I've counseled some of you, and I know the elders have been involved in some of this counseling, and and some of us uh, were so close. And praise God, some of you today are a testimony of saying, no, I will stop serving the world and start serving God. But it was close. It was close. You were really contemplating the decision, do I even continue on with this faith thing? I give you Demas as a case study. It's dangerous. So we need to have a proper love. And this love is for the right things. Love the people of this world. I'll even say love the planet. Enjoy it. Take it in. It's for your enjoyment. Do what God has called you to. But be careful when it comes to the program because it will destroy your life. I want to give you a couple definitions at this point. And I assure you, my second and third point aren't that long. So stick with me. Some definitions, throw them up there. C.J. Mahaney in his book, Worldliness, says this on this. I want you to write it down. So I'm going to tell uh, them to keep these up. Worldliness is a love for this fallen world. It is loving the values and pursuits of the world that stand opposed to God. More specifically, it is to gratify and exalt oneself to the exclusion of God. It rejects God's rule and replaces it with our own. It elevates our sinful desires for the things of this fallen world above God's commands and promises. I'm going to leave that up there in a second. I want you to flip for a one-liner that I want to pull from one more definition. I love what David Wells says about worldliness. Worldliness makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. Can you say that that defines your world? Why do you go to church? Why are you faithful to your spouse? Why do you love your kids? Why don't you just have a good time? It doesn't make any sense. It's because worldliness makes righteousness seem strange and wickedness seem normal. These are great definitions because they define for us that worldliness isn't just found in in those filthy five. In fact, anything can be a level of worldliness, all depending on if you reject God's rule and replace it with your own. When you exalt your opinions over God's truth, that can be seen in any activity of life. That's why worldliness is so pervasive. It doesn't have to be just five things. It could be a million and five things that can be defined as worldliness if we fall into what Mahaney says is this definition. The next thing that we see, if we want to remain faithful amidst these definitions, are that we need to live a pure life amidst wickedness. How do we remain faithful? It involves a pure life amidst the world of wickedness. 
Notice what the text says in verse 16. For everything in the world, the cravings of the sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. Thank you, John, for helping us understand that. You're not saying everything in the world is bad. You're not saying go find a log cabin out in Montana next to the Unabomber and hang out there. What you're saying is, is there are three distinct ways that worldliness comes alive in our lives. And so what we need to do is, first of all, if we want to see a pure life amidst this wickedness of sin, we must recognize the world's methods. How does worldliness flesh itself out? John gives three. The first one that we see is that the, well, before I get to that, the devil is smart enough to know that you won't pursue the things of this world if they don't look pretty if they don't look beautiful. I love the ads uh, as you're walking in the grocery aisle and you're in the checkout line. And every once in a while you see the National Enquirer uh, show celebrities without their makeup. I gotta be honest with you, sometimes I think they look uglier than I am. I, I just think what a little makeup could do to Tim Bedall. A lot of makeup, thank you Scott. They sugarcoat. It masquerades. The devil does that with all kinds of sin. He masquerades as an angel of light. He says, you're not going to go for the garbage. So let's put an image there that looks beautiful and that looks great. It may even be something that is totally acceptable in the right parameters by God and his word. But don't go after what God says. Just take it now. Don't wait for God's parameters. Take it in. So he masquerades. And it involves three things. Write this down. It's not in your, uh, it is in your outline. Shameful appetites. The first one is shameful appetites. Notice what he says. The cravings of the sinful man. In the NIV, it does a good job. I've been, I've been not saying nice things about our translation, the NIV, in the last couple of weeks. So I'm going to give it some props. It does a very nice job here when it speaks of the word craving. So the word in the Greek is epithumia, which means to have a strong desire, a strong hunger. It's translated many times in the text as lust, uh, but lust in the English language usually speaks of a sexual issue. And this is not just sexual uh, hunger and thirst, uh, but it's that of uh, a broad sense. It comes, it says, from the sinful man. That is the flesh. Though we're redeemed, we carry around the flesh, which we battle day and night. Our flesh has not been eradicated. It will not be until we stand in glory. And so between the cravings and, and the concoction of who we are, the sinful man comes together and we start craving things. We hunger for things. And have you ever noticed that when you're hungry, all you can think about is eating? You can't think about anything else. A survey was done or a study was done. When you go grocery shopping when you're hungry, you will spend on average 50% more than you would if you went after you've had a meal. Why? Because when you're hungry, you crave everything. And so you just start buying and consuming. And so we find ourselves, because we're not tuned into God, hungering things. And so the world is this grocery store, this super Walmart of goods. And we just start consuming. Give me more and more. I, I can't, Walmart's not good enough. I gotta go to Sam's, get the industrial pack. <laughs> Shameful appetites. I love what William Barclay says. John is speaking about a life dominated by the senses. It is to be gluttons in food. 
That hit close to home. It can be lavish in luxury, slavish in pleasure, lustful and lax in morals, selfish in your possessions. Regardless of all spiritual values, you are extravagant in the gratifications of the worldly, earthly, and material desires. Does that define you? At times it defines me. It's the flesh's desire to be forgetful and blind to the commands of God. Again, this is what Paul was talking about. In Galatians, write this passage down. You can look at it later. Galatians five nineteen through 21. Uh, the sinful desires or cravings bring forth four things. Immorality, idolatry, interpersonal issues or relational issues, and indulgence. And he gives a litany of sins. The devil tries to take that which is natural and healthy. Food, sex affirmation, things like a desire for shelter and companionship, that which is legitimate, and he tells you to pursue it in an illegitimate way. Next, it involves a showy appearance, method number two. This term, what he says here is the cravings of sinful man. Now he says the lust of the eyes. The term points to the sinful desires of greed and covetousness uh, to which... uh, let me redo that again. This term points to the sinful desires of greed and covetousness to want the things that we do not have while others have them around us. The world whets their appetite by showing us that what we have is no good. It starts there. I despise a commercial. I think it's Toyota. John Redmond will be mad at me. And it's about a, it's a minivan commercial where the mom doesn't want to be viewed as a mom. She wants to be sexy. She wants to be hot. And so this minivan commercial, and I tell you, it's subtle. There's nothing bad in it. She's not wearing a bikini or anything. But she sees two men. And because she's in her hot new ride, this minivan, woohoo! these two guys are pointing to her and she thinks that they're attracted to her. And she's all, hey, how you doing? That's the ugliest woman impersonation I've ever seen, and I didn't even see it. (laughs) And she thinks that they're attracted to her, and all they're doing is pointing out that her diaper bag is on top of the car. (laughs) It's funny, isn't it? And I'm not going to beat you up. that it's, It's funny, because that's how we are. And so we watch these commercials. We take them in and say, huh. It's not sexy to be a mom. It's not cool to be a mom. What are you talking about? God has given you that role. Children are a gift from the Lord. And the world says, no, they're not. Do whatever you can to hide it. Hide the kids so you'll look great. This is the showy appearance. Oh, we are so shallow at times when it comes to our appearances. The products of the world that they're trying to sell, you know, buy bigger and be happy. Find the most beautiful person in the world and then you'll be satisfied. I've always noticed all those beautiful people in Hollywood can't stay married for their their life depended on it. They're beautiful people when they wear makeup. (laughs) And they, they, they can't stay married. Have you ever noticed that most of Hollywood is in addict recovery? I don't seem very happy to me. Boy, we fall to it because we watch Entertainment Tonight. And we say, wow, it'd be great to be them. Reality shows about every Hollywood person. 
And we watch it by the millions we take it in. I'll tell you, it's even come into the world of the church. The prosperity gospel says, if you take in Jesus, he'll give you everything you want. So you'll drive around in a nice car, you'll be healthy. Just take Jesus. It's garbage. Religion that is flawed is religion that seeks to serve God, not self. Let me get to the third method, showy, or sorry, shallow applause. The final attempt is to tempt us. Notice what he says. The lust of the eyes and the boasting of what he has, has and does. Here's the amazing thing. In the first two cravings, they deal with things that we don't have that we want. The last one deals with what we have and how we want to elevate what we have or what we've done to show the world. And so we want to have the world just applaud. Oh, look at Tim. Look at what he's accomplished. Wonderful job. Have you noticed? I think tonight is the Oscars. You know how many award shows we've got? We just love standing in the limelight and letting people clap for us. We make up titles uh, for uh, trophies and, and things that we give out to people just so that we can give out people, give things to people. It's like my son's T-ball. Everybody gets a trophy. Everybody's a winner. And we get up and I'd just like to thank the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I made a junky movie and I know it, but you guys love me and that's all that matters. Boy, we're so hungry for the applause of people. This is worldliness. Nebuchadnezzar looked at his kingdom in Daniel 4.30 and says, look at the great Babylon that I've created. And you know what God did? God says, you think you created this? I'm going to make you an animal. You're going to walk on all fours. You're going to eat grass. We'll see how great your Babylon is then. Oh, how much we are quick to look. Look at my house. Look at my 401k. Look at, look at all these things. It's amazing how wonderful a recession is. Would you agree with that? How much it shows us our dependence on God. We can't do it without Him. We need to resist the world's mastery. When we yield to these things, my friends, when we fall in love with this world, we start maintaining fellowship with the world, not with God. Romans 12, 1 and 2 tells us how we are to resist this mastery. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Now, that's what we're to be doing. Here comes the, the call to not do something. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. That word conformed means that it brings you into shape, into the form that the world wants you to be. It makes a mold for you. And what God is, God's word is saying is, be transformed, don't conform. As a believer, turn off that stuff that's conforming you. Don't think you have to wear the stuff that people say you have to wear. Don't think you have to be a part of the things that the world says you have to be a part of. Be transformed. Don't fall into their mold. Because when you fall into their mold, you no longer are salt and light to the world. You are useless and you're thrown to the ground. Resist its mastery. Finally, let me close with this. It involves a passionate longing for God's will. Verse 17 is not to be something that is exegeted from what all commentators say, but it is to be just a thought that should ring in our hearts, and I want that to be true today. And that is we should long for God and His will. Why? Because He says... 
The world and its desires will pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. You want to long for God's will? It involves leaving that which is passing. Leaving that which is passing. Do you know this world is coming to an end? Do you know it? Do you see all the earthquakes happening? The world is saying, I'm getting tired. I'm going to start raising a ruckus. Scripture talks about that. Ever since the day of Christ's ascension to uh, heaven, we are in the last days. This day is coming to an end. The Bible says that this earth will be consumed with fire. All of its desires, all of its passions will pass away. And so why are you pursuing the things that will not last? You think you're going to take them home with you? When was the last time you saw a hearse have a U-Haul cart behind it? You ain't, ain't going with you. Naked you came into this world, naked you're going out. They'll give you a suit just to keep you modest. And they're putting you in the ground. And that's all that's going to be there. And yet we spend the 75, 80 years of our life pursuing the things of this world. The appearances that we think to look good, the applause of the world, and consuming the shameful appetites of this world. And we think that at the end of the day, it's going to be great. We're going to take all this with it. Nothing goes with you. Your prized possession does not go. But notice, it is time for us to live for that which is permanent. The only things that last, my friends, are the things from God. And if you're pursuing the garbage of this world, it's going to be gone soon. Pursue that which is permanent. Last year, you knew that I took my family. It was a surprise. I was going to take them to Walt Disney World. And on the, way to the, on the way to church that morning, they knew that there was a special surprise coming. And I was dying to tell them, and being the dad that I am, I usually kid them. And so I told them, well, we're going to Chuck E. Cheese after church. Chuck E. Cheese, that's great. I love Chuck E. Cheese. It's awesome. So we get in after the service, and we are in the car. And I tell them, in all excitement... I got great news for you. We're not going to Chuck E. Cheese. And they, whoa, wait wait a minute. Whoa, whoa. I said, we're going to Walt Disney World. Luke's oblivious. He doesn't know what's going on. He's just happy for a ride. (laughs) Noah understands it. And he has a a greater perspective. My little Joshua says, I don't want to go to Walt Disney World. I want to go to Chuck E. Cheese. Are you kidding me? The whole way to Midway Airport, he's crying because he wants to go to Chuck E. Cheese. Now let me ask you the question, which one's better? Chuck E. Cheese or Walt Disney World? Chuck E. Cheese. Thanks a lot for ruining the illustration. You know, we live like my Joshua does. We see God and His greatness, and no pun intended, but a kingdom where dreams are made of. And we say we would rather have the moment and go play a couple video games, eat junky pizza, and think that's where our contentment is found. Boy, have we been fooled. I want you to close with this. I want you to ask a couple questions of yourself. I know we've gone a little longer. I apologize for that, but I think this is important. Evaluate whether you love the world or the Father. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Just think about this. Which do you seek more? Which do you seek with greater fervor? The wealth and honors of the world or the riches of grace and the approval of God? Which one? Be honest. 
which has a greater attraction? The pleasures of the world, which are only for a season, or those pleasures at God's right hand, which are for eternity? Where does your confidence lie? In the money that you have in your bank account and investments? Or living knowing that you have a faithful God who has promised to supply all your needs? Which causes you deeper sorrow? A temporal loss of something you have? Or a break in your fellowship with God? Upon which do you get more joy? Spending money on personal comforts and luxuries or spending money to further the gospel and to build God's kingdom? What most dominates your mind? Thoughts and schemes of worldly accomplishments, advancements, or resolutions and efforts to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ? With your head bowed, some of you need to make a choice this morning. Will you love the Father and abide in His love? Or will you love this world? Most of us have made the choice, but we need to maintain it. Do not yield to the temptations of this world, but do the will of God, and it is there that we will abide forever. I want to close with a prayer. It's not mine. But bow with me and resonate in your hearts with these words by a man named Sir Francis Drake. He says, Disturb us, O Lord, when we are too pleased with ourselves, when our dreams have come true because we have dreamed too little, when we arrive safely because we sailed too close to the shore. Disturb us, Heavenly Father, with the abundance, when the abundance of things we possess, we then lose our thirst for the waters of life. Having fallen in love with life, we have ceased to dream of the eternal. And in our efforts to build a new earth, we have allowed our vision of our new heaven to grow dim. Heavenly Father, let us dare to be disturbed more boldly, to then venture on wider seas where storms will show your mastery, where losing sight of the land we shall find your stars. We ask that you push us back to the horizons of your hopes and to push us into the future in strength, courage, hope, and love.